Hey there, Poemcasters, and welcome back to another episode of Poemcast. Today, we're going to be recording another Poemcast Little, where we talk a lot about little topics. Is that what it is? <laughs> Wait. Yeah, we called these Poemcast Littles, but as you will probably see by the end time here, it's not going to be short, so we should probably rename it. But to us, I think it's just topics that we can talk more conversationally on and, and maybe more intangibles of the medicine, less so kind of deep dives into topics. Today, we're going to do patient assessment and a primary, secondary, tertiary survey. And for this episode, we've brought on someone who is super passionate about this and has spent a large majority of his career explaining this concept to people. His name is Mike Burton. Hello, Pomcast Nation. I'll, uh, I'll try to intro you and you can fill in the blank. So Mike is a fellow critical care PA. He's been with our group. How many years now? Six? Five, I think. Five. five. Mike is a all-around awesome guy, former EMS, extensive experience in the field, and brings a lot of that skills to the critical care arena. Mike does a ton with our group from being difficult airway faculty and being our, our kind of main airway guru to running our simulation program running our mock code program. He's a member of our Code Blue committee in the hospital, super passionate about codes and near codes and, and airway assessments and patient assessment. He's a pilot, scuba diver, sailor. I don't think all that's necessary. Truck, <laughs> truck driver. <laughs> Extraordinary. Hey, if, if it includes the adrenaline, I'm there. <laughs> exactly. So... And actually, I think we'll we'll end up with some airline analogies, I'm sure, at some point. Can't maybe <laughs> on the podcast about that. I think you probably count on that. So I think part of the reason we're recording this episode is at least in our training, we appropriately so spend a ton of time understanding how to get a history and physical on a patient and talking to them extensively in the ER or wherever you're admitting them. And getting a feel for what's going on, and that's all well and good and really important if that patient is stable enough for you to spend an hour thinking through all those things. But in the ER and critical care world, and really in any world, that's not always the case. And so a lot of times we find when we're training people, they have to unlearn some of those concepts they've learned in school and kind of use this patient assessment to really look at every patient in a different light. And so we have to spend a lot of time talking about this in training. So we figured it'd be a great episode to give you a peek into our minds of what we're thinking about. Yeah, I think a lot of it is really learning about the physiology of a process versus actually looking at the patient. It's really important when you go into a room, instead of thinking what you've learned in your textbook, is to actually look at your patient and understand what's going on in front of you. Right. I mean, can't tell you how many times I've Someone's relatively new in training and will respond to a rapid response call or a stat team call and and they'll walk in the room and, and stat team is telling them all these things and their first reaction is to go back out to the computer and sit down. And so we really do have to untrain that out of them. Exactly. So we're really excited to have Mike on board because he is one of the main teachers that helps our trainees with this. So Mike, can you tell us more about what it's all about? Yeah, sure. Thanks, guys, for having me on the show. I guess I have to give a little bit of credit to Chad Case. I think he was one of the ones who taught me kind of this outline of how to teach the primary, secondary, and tertiary survey that he calls the first pass, second pass, and third pass method. But we'll start with the first pass, which is basically the primary survey. And the goal of the primary survey is to keep your patient alive. And I know that sounds probably a little bit silly to say, 
But we really have to remind ourselves that despite all the other information that may be coming our way from the nurse or a computer or the patient, uh, that we have to make sure that we're treating life-threatening illnesses first before we start getting into more detailed information. So the way I usually talk about the uh, first pass, keeping the patient alive, is through a little rhyme or acronym, L-O-C-A-B-C's. L-O-C stands for level of consciousness. And really the main thing here, we want to make sure the patient is actually responsive, and uh, which will kind of prioritize whether or not we check for a pulse next and uh, begin CPR, or whether or not we go through our primary assessment uh, in an ABC fashion. So when we describe level of consciousness, uh, one of the ways you can use, of course, is the GCS, although this may be a little too cumbersome and take a little too much time. So I usually use the AVPU method. Um, it basically stands A for alert, V for verbal, which means you're only responsive you know, to verbal stimuli. P for pain, you're only alert to painful stimuli, sternal rub or a trapezius pinch. And then U for unresponsive. The utility of this is if you're only responsive to painful stimuli, your GCS is probably close to eight and you need to consider intubating for airway protection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's important to not waste your time doing NIH stroke scale here or GCS. Just, exactly, yeah. So the next thing we would do is to move on to A, which is for airway. The way we really describe airway that we're looking for is that it's open and that it's patent. Open really refers mostly to the position of that airway patient is slumped over or has his neck flexed, his airway may not be open and he can't move air. In the event that the airway is not open, we would open it using a head tilt chin lift or a modified jaw thrust. I think as a non-EMS person, just that simple is the airway open and patent is something that was a foreign concept to me until I did critical care. And to be honest, in times of stress is something that I'll still forget as not being a former EMS person. I, I remember distinctly telling you about a a tough scenario I was in on night shift several months ago. And one of the things you're like, well, did someone do a head tilt chin lift? And I was like, no, dang, I forgot that. Because <laughs> I'm worried about LMA or intubate and what yeah. drugs should we use and keeping yeah. the blood pressure up and just forgot about simple keeping the airway open. Peyton. I walk over to the head of the bed and just with a simple head tilt chin lift and opening that airway with a little jaw thrust and maybe even a nasal airway or something in place, you know, the patient's able to move air and we're able to stave off that cardiac arrest until we can actually you right. know, get intubation supplies in the room. Absolutely. Of course, the most common upper airway obstruction in adults is the tongue. And so if the patient's occluding their airway with their tongue, an oral airway, or of course the contraindication of that being an intact gag reflex, uh, we would insert a nasal pharyngeal airway. So once we've established that the patient has an open and patent airway, then we move on to assessing if they are breathing adequately. Now, it's important to understand that even if the patient has a pulse ox that's reading okay, that doesn't necessarily indicate that they're breathing adequately. It may mean they're oxygenating okay, but they're not ventilating, and they could have a pretty severe respiratory acidosis. So if the patient is not moving enough air, we need to ventilate them either through a bag valve mask, BiPAP, or, of course, once we get set up for intubation. Mm-hmm. And here you're kind of, correct me if I'm wrong, you're looking at work of breathing, are they using accessory muscles? Are they breathing 35 times a minute with an impending respiratory arrest? Are they Kuzmal breathing? Or to your other kind of patient you're talking about, are they breathing four times a minute and taking shallow breaths and 
have something mentally going on, precluding them from breathing. Yeah, exactly. I think the the keywords here is, is the breathing adequate? And, and of course, is it sustainable? You know, the patient is breathing the 40 times a minute and with work of breathing, technically, they're probably breathing adequately enough in the current state. But just a presentation that you're describing leads me to believe that they may have impending airway collapse right. uh, in the next you know few minutes, at which point I'd want to try to set up for how we're going to manage that, either with BiPAP or intubation of some sort. Mm-hmm. If you're unable to pick up a pulse ox during this time, just empirically put oxygen on people. A lot of times, if I am not don't have a pulse ox to go off of, I'll just put an honor breathe on the patient and move on to C, which is yeah. circulation. Absolutely. That's a good point. Keeping it simple here, when we're assessing circulation, we really just want to know, is the patient refusing themselves adequately? If we jump straight to here from an unresponsive patient, then, of course, do they even have a pulse? And at that point, we're checking either a carotid or a femoral pulse. And if they do have a pulse, of course, we're not going to do CPR. Then we're going to move out to a peripheral pulse, basically checking a radial they have a radial pulse that's good and strong. We can assume that the blood pressure should be, uh, some textbooks say 80, some say 90 systolic. But if you have a good, strong radial pulse, it's a good indication that you have adequate perfusion. If I did not have a radial pulse, but I only had a central pulse, even without a blood pressure reading, I'm probably going to make the interpretation that the patient is not perfusing adequately and start empirically treating blood pressure. Some of the other ways besides just pulse strength that we could assess for perfusion, of course, is you know, the color of their skin, um, capillary refill time, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Are they, are they cold and mottled? Yeah. Exactly. So again, to emphasize uh, empiric treatment in this state based on our physical exam of the patient. It's a distractor when we're trying to get a good set of vital signs on the patient and we feel like the patient's unstable, but we don't have a blood pressure to prove hypotension or we don't have a pulse ox to prove hypoxia. And we delay treatment because we're trying to find that number to, to confirm that, and delaying care to the patient if we do that. So I just want to stress empirically treating hypoxia and hypotension instead of waiting on a true set of vital signs. Although those should be coming almost in parallel with your physical exam as some of your other staff members are working. The LOC, ABC, that concept is, is pretty simple, but... One of the areas I see the provider or the clinician fail the patient in this mode, despite its simplicity, is that we recognize the life-threatening emergency, but we don't take swift action to treat it or reverse it. Yeah, absolutely. Don't move on to the secondary or tertiary parts until you have for sure stabilized your primary part. Exactly. Real quick, so something we were talking about before this a little bit is in the uh, ACLS world, it's now CAB. But I notice you're not changing yours. Are you Are you just being an old stagnant, or is there a reason for that? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I get a little bit of fire from this when I teach it sometimes for that reason. But, you know, CAB really refers to how we should implement CPR and check things in a, in a patient that's in cardiac arrest. Of course, if a patient was in cardiac arrest, I would start with chest compressions, and then I would open the airway and give two breaths. But in a patient that is not in cardiac arrest, it's an alive patient, then we usually still progress through A, B, and C. And part of the reason there is, you know, if the patient is not breathing adequately, maybe it's because they have an airway obstruction, right? Mm-hmm. If the patient is hypotensive, you know, it may be, you know, due to, you know, a problem with airway or breathing and hypoxia. So start with A and work through it to C. 
And we're talking about these for a, a long time today on purpose, but in general, how fast are you doing this? Yeah, great question. When I give this lecture, you know, everyone, it does seem like it's going to take a while, but of course we're teaching through it. In real life, this usually depends on how sick the patient is, but if, if there are no abnormalities, I can adequately check LOC and ABC in about 10 seconds. Of course, if I'm finding problems with airway and the patient's not breathing and, you know, I may be in pass one for, you know, a minute and a half or two as we kind of get things, start getting stabilized or even more, you know, when you talk about uh, an actual patient in cardiac arrest, most of the code you're living right there in pass one, mm-hmm. you know, dabbling into pass two as you work through your H's and T's and try to gain some knowledge while you're still you know, providing resuscitative efforts. But, you know, on the patient that is alive and they don't have a lot of life-threatening you know, issues, maybe just alter mental status. I can usually get through it in about 10 or 15 seconds, give some brief orders to start to stabilize the patient and then start moving on into gaining a working knowledge of the patient. Absolutely. And I think uh, one really important concept when it comes to this is actually something we talked about before and the practice doesn't make perfect, but perfect practice makes perfect is being really intentional with your primary, secondary and tertiary survey, you know, in the beginning, it's going to take you longer than it does later, but making sure that you really intentionally go through it in your mind. I know earlier we had talked about before we even started recording, you know, when you think about the ABCs, a lot of people don't actually know what they're looking for. So actually thinking about, okay, is the airway actually open? What exactly does that mean? Yeah. Since John told me I couldn't get out of this without giving an aviation reference, I'll uh, (laughs) (laughs) kind of mention the idea of the word unable. And in the aviation uh, industry, we talk about flying the airplane before you do um, other things like navigating or communicating with air traffic control and is everyone's probably heard a new story or two of an airplane crashing getting turned upside down in clouds or running into a mountain and a lot of times that's that's because they get caught up with doing something with navigating or communicating and they forget to fly the airplane which is the most important thing and so you know there's a phrase that we use as pilots where we just key the radio up and respond unable and we continue to prioritize the most important thing, which is flying the airplane. And then once we're able to get the airplane under control and make sure that we're safe and we're flying level, we'll key the radio back up and and take care of business, crossing our T's and dotting our I's. I think the same thing applies here. You know, a lot of times you walk into a room and you're bombarded with information about the patient and questions. And if you don't have the ability to just look at those people and, and basically say unable and get straight to your ABCs first, you may be standing in the room for a minute or two before you realize the patient doesn't have a pulse or their pressure is 60 over 40. Right. I, what I like about that is it's a, it's a shared word that has a specific meaning. It's simple. It's easy. We need a word like that in, in critical care. We're getting better and better about having shared language around a lot of things, but I haven't heard one yet for that. So I like unable a lot because you're right. You'll walk into a, a room and, and you've got three or four different people telling you different pieces of information about the patient that are important, but are not as important as making sure they have the primary survey is good and they have a pulse and ABC. So yeah, I like that a lot. Can we use unable? Can we start that? <laughs> unable. Okay, so let's say we have our primary survey done. So we've stabilized ABCs or CABs in the unresponsive patient, and now we're moving on to our secondary survey. So what exactly is secondary survey and how do we do it? So the secondary survey, the overall arching principle here is to basically gain a working knowledge of the patient. 
And I want to emphasize a good working knowledge here. And, and what that really means is I don't really care about a surgery they may have had 12 years ago. And, you know, I may not care about what their labs were, you know, on admission. What I really care about is information that would change the management of this patient and allow me to, again, reverse any potential life-threatening illnesses. I kind of break this down into three sections. One of them is basically just information about the patient, meaning a good set of vital signs, a quick history that most of the time can come from the patient's primary nurse or someone that's already there at the bedside as these events have unfolded. I would stress that we should keep this to probably just a one or two sentence explanation. It's not necessarily important to know what's happened throughout the whole hospital course and it's just going to delay prompt treatment, but more so describe the events that's happened over the past few hours that's led up to this critical care situation. One thing I do think may be helpful if the person at bedside can't provide it is a quick review of the recent medications given. Often I find medications for pain or anxiety, things like morphine and Ativan, are the contributing factor to the patient's altered mental status, hypotension, or respiratory failure. You know, a lot of times uh, restarting antihypertensive medications can be implicated. You know, maybe a patient's been NPO and they are now put back on a diet and they restart three or four of their home blood pressure medicines at once and now they're hypotensive. So just a quick scan of their meds. So really here, you're not, you're not even really trying to get the diagnosis yet, right? You're really more just developing a, a working knowledge of the patient, would you say, and maybe starting to go down the road of developing a differential, but not really, you're not trying to nail down this uh, patient has pneumonia. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I don't think that we have to make a diagnosis to treat life-threatening illnesses here. That's definitely one of the you know, main principles of critical care and stabilizing the patient. So the second category that I think about here is lab work. Of course, we've all probably seen a stroke alert at some point called mm -hmm. um, just to find out the patient had a glucose of 20. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I would start with some simple labs that we can obtain at bedside because we're probably still making sure the patient is continuing to stay stable, you know, gain some IV access, things of that nature. So I'd check a glucose or treat that if it's low. Maybe check an ABG, make sure hypoxia and or hypercapnia is not implicated. We can check electrolytes, especially if the patient's having arrhythmias. Get an idea of renal function and, of course, uh, a CBC to assess you know, if the patient could be bleeding patient could have sepsis, something of that nature. You can get cardiac markers, troponin, BMP, stuff like that. EKG. Would, yeah. EKG, I kind of, even though I guess it's not really radiology, I kind of sure. loop that into the third category. Gotcha. Okay. Which, you know, I kind of just call it radiology, but things like chest x-ray, you know, CAT scan of the head, of course, to rule out uh, hemorrhage, or in the event of a, you know, stroke-like symptoms to, you know, give you the green light for TPA if they're within the window. Mm -hmm. CT of the chest to rule out dissection and or pulmonary embolism, you know, CT abdomen and pelvis sometimes can give you some insight to either bleeding or an intra-abdominal infection that needs to be uh, drained and treated adequately. Point of care ultrasound, of course, is a great imaging modality because it's portable. It's not invasive. You can do it at the bedside. And then, of course, the EKG and things of that nature. So the important thing here, though, is to not waste your time and your resources looking for things that you cannot directly intervene on. For example, if you had a patient that was on a high-intensity heparin drip that you thought may have a pulmonary embolism, 
if you were going to initiate TPA or put the patient on ECOS, then it may be reasonable to go get a CT angiogram in that moment. But if a patient's on high-intensity heparin drip and they're not a candidate for the aforementioned treatments, I don't know if I would waste my time and resources and put the patient at increased risk taking them off the floor for a CTA. I would continue to search for other causes and reverse those. And then once we get into kind of the third pass and everything's settled down, then we can send them for things that are just a, a good to know. Or Right. The other thing, if you're, if you're already doing POCUS in that situation, and I think, like you're, I think POCUS is super helpful here because really quick you can say, all right, there's no tamponade. That's anyone who's done a little bit of cardiac POCUS should be able to figure that out. Uh, the RV doesn't look big. So we, if they have a PE, it's not causing RV strain. So it's not a massive PE. So it's not the cause of this near arrest situation we're in. Uh, and then you can get a rough estimate, even if you're not a pro, this EF's not 10%. This EF is adequate. You, is what I write a lot when I'm doing focus. They have an adequate EF. So right then I've ruled out three huge causes of shock. And then if you then you get some pneumothorax skills, you can rule out tension pneumothorax pretty quickly, and then you're in business. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, you kind of hit the nail on the head there. We're just looking for for the big things here. Again, not trying to get too detailed and, and treat the patient's hypothyroidism and um, you know their high cholesterol and stuff like that. Of course, to be a little facetious, but just looking for the things that might kill them and things that we can't actually intervene on and find those quickly. Okay, so once you've focused on the secondary survey, you've gone to working history, you've gone through your labs, and you've gone through all your imaging to try and figure out why you, you're even in the situation with this patient, you move on to the tertiary or the third pass. So can you explain more about that? Yeah, the third pass is not, not nearly as exciting as the first and second <laughs> pass, admittingly. <laughs> but uh, really, this is just where you tie up all the loose ends. I think the kind of take home here is just to, to do everything else, to learn everything about the patient. And this is... a course, where you get to actually sit down in front of the computer and uh, do a full chart review, look at their previous history and all the stuff that's led up to this point, maybe on this hospitalization or previous hospitalizations. But uh, of course, you'll be doing your note and, you know, putting in orders and adding treatment teams, things like that. But, you know, I think the important thing here to remember is that you don't have a lot of the results back from that second pass quite yet, usually when you're sitting down at a computer doing third pass things. So make sure that you're following up on everything that you ordered in second pass and assessing response to treatment, that flu bolus that you may have ordered or you know, the electrolytes that you may have replaced. You now need to you know, follow up and say, did my patient improve? Did that work? Do they need more? Or was that the wrong treatment? We need to change gears here. Um, I also usually include in here family updates, You know, give the family a quick call, um, update other providers that may be already seeing the patient, call your consultants things of that nature, kind of the crossing of your T's and dotting your I's phase. Yeah, exactly. It's important to know this is the first time you've sat down on the computer in tertiary survey. No computers before now. Yeah, exactly. No, it's um, definitely a shout out to <laughs> a shout out to our new hires. <laughs> well, I think that's huge because, you know, when we're in a stressful situation, especially in the setting of being a new hire where you've never done this before and you're scared and you're nervous, you kind of look at what you could control and you could – control how you type. You can't necessarily control right. if the patient's going to live or not. <laughs> yeah, they do it because it's it's something familiar safe. to them. Yeah, yeah it's, it's safe. Really safe. 
it's not, yeah, those rapid response situations are not, not safe <laughs> when you're yeah, new. Yeah, exactly. I think I heard, I uh, don't really remember who said this, but I think I heard the phrase one time, they told a new hire that uh, no one deserves to die with your back to them. Ooh, I like that a lot. Kind of like that. And I kind of said, listen, if someone's dying, they should at least die with you looking at them and trying to save them versus having your back to them looking at a computer screen. Very Absolutely. True. And Absolutely. Mike, one thing. So Mike actually taught me about two years ago when I was a new hire. It was one of my first lectures. It was on primary, secondary, and tertiary assessment. And it stuck with me since then. But I remember one thing you always taught me was that you're constantly restarting this method as you reassess the patient. Yeah, exactly. Um, has it only been two years? Yeah. It, well, October 2016. Okay. All yeah, right. Isn't that crazy? Look how far <laughs> we've all came. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And I think that's a great point. At any time you have a patient change, we should go back to pass one. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we may have half the patient intubated and we got them on some pressors and now we're sitting down at the computer and maybe the nurse hollers out and uh, needs some help and you come in and the patient is now newly hypotensive or the patient is now newly hypoxic, you know, we need to start right back at ABCs because that, that ET tube that we placed 30 minutes ago now may be dislodged. Um, you know, the, the lung that was up on our, that's that ultrasound 30 minutes ago may now be uh, a pneumothorax. And so just continuously go back to pass one, two, you know, pass one, two, and three and work through it that way um, so that you don't miss, you know, quick changes and new life-threatening emergencies. Absolutely. So really quickly to summarize, we have our primary survey, or our first pass, which includes LOC, ABC, meaning level of consciousness and airway breathing circulation. We then go on to the secondary survey, or the second pass. And this isn't focused on the diagnosis. It's focused on why we're here in the first place. We get a working history of what's been happening with the patient recently. So we look at anything that will change their immediate care. And then we move on to the tertiary survey, or the third pass, where we tie up all the other loose ends. We learn everything else about the patient. We sit in front of the computer and learn about the patient, learn their previous medical history and what's been going on in their hospitalization. We also reassess the patient. Are they responding to the treatment we've given them so far? We follow up on labs and imaging from our secondary survey. We constantly reassess the patient. Go back to the primary survey if we need to and go through the three steps again. My end thoughts on this, I I still think this is super important. I'm glad we talked about it. It is just a total mental shift from how we're trained. And my take-home point that you just reminded me of, I think I probably falsely assumed that I can switch back and forth from being an HMP detective and getting into, you know, kind of patient assessment, primary survey stuff when I need to. Yeah, it's impactful for me every time I teach this to a new hire or a student. It takes me, you know, a good 30 minutes to talk through all of this and and then, you know, as we practice it throughout the rest of our shift on every single patient we come in contact with, it's such a simple concept, but actually, you know, takes a lot of active thought to happen. And um, I agree. I think we assume that we can do this or do do this, uh, but uh, it actually takes some active thought to make sure that it happens. I was saying just being intentional about it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's something that's easy to forget, too, once you begin to rely on experience or on familiar situations, you've seen this before, and you kind of get tunnel vision and you assume something when really this helps prevent that. Yeah, and I think the uh, reason I kind of like a good flow, I mean, I know ABCs are, is a little bit of a cliche, right? But 
at the same time, you know, when it's three o'clock in the morning and you're tired on night shift day five, maybe you hadn't had your coffee yet and you're pretty busy and you get called. I mean, I'm working through this the same way every time. And so if you, you approach it that way, then it'll help you not miss that when you're tired and stressed and overloaded. Absolutely. Until next time. Keep breathing, keep reading, keep streaming, and assess your patient. That sounds good. Boom.